This is Chapter 8 of Mark Twain, His Life and Work, a biographical sketch by William M. Clemens, read by John Greenman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8. His Later Works. On September 3, 1879, Mr. Clemens and his family arrived in New York on the steamship Galbier, having been abroad for a period of sixteen months. There said mark to a friend as the ship left quarantine and began her journey up the bay the danger is finally past when the ship begins to roll sideways and kick up behind at the same time i always know i am expected to perform a certain duty i learned it years ago on the quaker city you might suppose that I would have forgotten my part after so long a residence on shore, but there it is again. It's habit. Everything connected with the sea comes down to a matter of habit. You might confine me for forty years in a Rhode Island corn patch and at the end of that time i'd know just as well what to do when a ship begins to kick as i do at this moment the darkest night never confuses me in the least it's a little singular when you look at it isn't it but i presume it's attributable to the solemn steadfastness of the great deep as a conscientious republican in his political preferences mr clemens took an active interest in the presidential campaign of eighteen eighty while visiting in elmira new york in the fall of that year he made a short speech one saturday night introducing to a republican meeting general hawley of connecticut in the course of his remarks mr clemens said general hawley is a member of my church at hartford and the author of beautiful snow maybe he will deny that but i am only here to give him a character from his last place as a pure citizen i respect him as a personal friend of years i have the warmest regard for him as a neighbor whose vegetable garden adjoins mine why why i watch him as the author of beautiful snow he has added a new pang to winter he is a square true man in honest politics and i must say he occupies a mighty lonesome position so broad so bountiful is his character that he never turned a tramp empty-handed from his door but always gave him a letter of introduction to me pure honest incorruptible that is joe hawley such a man in politics is like a bottle of perfumery in a glue factory it may modify the stench 
but it doesn't destroy it i haven't said any more of him than i would say of myself ladies and gentlemen this is general hawley in november eighteen eighty a charity fair was in progress in buffalo and during its course a small journal called the bizarre bulletin was published in one number of this paper appeared a contribution from the pen of mark twain entitled a tale for struggling young poets well sir there was a young fellow who believed that he was a poet but the main difficulty with him was to get anybody else to believe it many and many a poet has split on that rock if it is a rock many and many a poet will split on it thank god the young fellow i speak of used all the customary devices and with the customary results to wit he competed for prizes and didn't take any he sent specimens of poetry to famous people and asked for a candid opinion meaning a puff and didn't get it he took advantage of dead persons and obituaried them in ostensible poetry but it made him no friends certainly none among the dead but at last he heard of another chance there was going to be a fair in buffalo accompanied by the usual inoffensive paper and the editor of that paper offered a prize of ten dollars for the best original poem on the usual topic of spring no poem to be considered unless it should possess positive value well sir he shook up his muse he introduced into her a rousing charge of information from his jug and then sat down and dashed off the following madrigal just as easy as lying hail beauteous gladsome spring a poem by s l clemens number one thousand one hundred and sixty three hartford connecticut november seventeenth george p bissell and company bankers pay to mrs david gray or order for f ten dollars household account s l clemens did he take the prize <laughs> yes he took the prize the poem and its title didn't seem to go together very well but no matter that sort of thing has happened before it didn't rhyme neither was it blank verse for the blanks were all filled yet it took the prize for this reason no other poem offered was really worth more than four dollars and fifty cents whereas there was no getting around the petrified fact that this one was worth ten dollars in truth there was not a banker in the whole town who was willing to invest 
a cent in those other poems but every one of them said this one was good sound seaworthy poetry and worth its face such is the way in which that struggling young poet achieved recognition at last and got a start along the road that leads to lyric eminence whatever that may mean therefore let other struggling young poets be encouraged by this to go striving mark twain not long after this mr clemens acted as an auctioneer at the last sale at a bazaar or fair held in hartford in opening the sale he said well now after a week of work by these ladies who have handled an immense amount of money without putting a penny into their private pockets i their mere clerk propose as clerks will sometimes to knock down something it was at this time that the humorist wrote a letter to a friend in tennessee expressing his admiration for artemus ward as follows dear sir one of the first questions which londoners ask me is whether i knew artemus ward the answer yes makes them my friends on the spot artemus seems to have been on the warmest terms with thousands of those people well he seems never to have written a harsh thing against anybody well, neither have i for that matter at least nothing harsh enough for a body to fret about and i think he never felt bitter toward people there may have been three or four other people like that in the world at one time or another but they probably died a good while ago i think his lecture on the babes in the woods was the funniest thing i ever listened to artemus once said to me gravely almost sadly clemens i have done too much fooling too much trifling i am going to write something that will live well what for instance in the same grave way he said a lie it was an admirable surprise i was just getting ready to cry he was becoming pathetic yours truly s l clemens in eighteen eighty two mr clemens wrote the stolen white elephant and the same year visited bermuda the following winter james r osgood and company of boston issued the stolen white elephant with which were incorporated some rambling notes of an idle excursion punch brother punch and other sketches about this time the humorist was asked to contribute to the bartholdi pedestal fund here was his response you know my weakness for adam and you know how i have struggled to get him a monument and failed now it seems to me here 
is my chance. What do we care for a statue of liberty when we've got the thing itself in its wildest sublimity? What you want of a monument is to keep you in mind of something you haven't got, something you've lost. Very well. We haven't lost liberty. We've lost Adam. Look at Adam. What have we done for Adam? What has Adam done for us? He gave us life. He gave us death. He gave us heaven. He gave us hell. With trifling alteration, this present statue will answer very well for Adam. You can turn that blanket into an ulster, part the hair on one side, or conceal the sex of his head with a fire helmet, and at once he's a man. Put a harp and a halo and a palm branch in the left hand to symbolize a part of what Adam did for us, and leave the fire basket just where it is to symbolize the rest. My friends, the father of life and death and taxes has been neglected long enough. Is it but a question of finance? Behold, the enclosed paid bank checks. Use them as freely as they are freely contributed. Heaven knows I would there were a ton of them. I would send them all to you, for my heart is in this sublime work. S. L. C. In 1882, while Mark Twain was collecting retrospective material for his Life on the Mississippi, he stopped one day at Arkansas City. He had, years before, known the place as Campbell's Bend, and naturally had a desire to poke about unattended by persons who would be likely to break in upon his musings. So, avoiding the committee that had been appointed to receive him, he wandered off into the woods. He thought nothing of the distance he was traversing. There was music among the treetops, and flowers, rich in deep coloring, perfumed the air. After a long walk he came to a cabin, and upon entering, found an old and tangle-bearded man sitting near the empty fireplace. The old fellow glanced at Twain, and then, springing between the visitor and the door, snatched down a gun, cocked it, and said, "'So I've got you, have I?' "'I don't understand you,' Twain gasped. "'Oh, no, I reckon not. Air man never understands a thing when he don't want her.' I didn't stop your steamboat down yonder below the bend the other day and steal sixty sheep that belonged to me, did you? I will swear upon the honor of a gentleman that I did not. I haven't been in this neighborhood before in twenty years. Sit down thar. Twain obeyed. The old man continued. It would have been, have been a good while since you was here before the other day, but you got here just in time to steal them sheep, and I'm going to have your scalp. Hear me? My dear sir, you are laboring under 
a frightful mistake i never owned a sheep in my life no i don't reckon you ever did own one and mine that nobody else ain't apt to own nary one or where you hang out yes i uh, come right here and tuck my sheep and her mum was her pet lamb that my little granddaughter loves better than she does her life and she ain't slept her wink since for crying about it oh you needn't blink for i am going to hold you here till my little gal comes and then i'm going to blow your head off it won't be long before she comes and if you've got any prize that you reckon ought to be said why you better say him that's all my dear sir don't hear sir me i've got you and i'm going to use you but how do you know that i stole your sheep you know how i know it you know that just as soon as you see her be coming you shoved off and more that you know that when i jumped in the canoe and started to paddle out out here why you shot at me you know all that well enough merciful heavens twain exclaimed yes i yes that's about what i allowed but the boat puffed on away a stick snapped outside great heavens twain thought is the girl coming no it was only a calf the expression on the old fellow's face grew harder there was a cruel twitching about the corners of his mouth oh don't you fret she'll be here directly my friend said twain with an effort to be calm if you will go with me over to arkansas city i will prove to you that i would not steal a sheep i don't want no proof that comes from that place you'd tell a lie and them fellers over there would swear to it now i see my little gal coming through yonder as i said just now if you got any powers you want said why i reckon you better say em would you commit murder would you steal a sheep surely not aha and surely i wouldn't be committing murder by killing such a feller as you er uh, don't move now uh, for if you do i'll drop you come quick now before the gal comes tell me if you know who did steal them sheep that is if you didn't i think i do twain quickly rejoined and then remembering the name of a steamboat engineer whom he'd known before the war he added joe billings stole your sheep the old fellow looked sharply at him and replied are you sure i am certain was you on his boat at the time uh, yes and tried to keep him from stealing them but could not you help me find him yes well then scoot quick before the gal comes when twain reached arkansas city he found the perplexed and disappointed committee he was nervous and depressed while he was standing in the office of the hotel someone said mr clemens you used to know joe billings didn't you twain felt an uneasiness crawling over him yes he replied there he is twain looked around and started the old fellow who had held him in the cabin came forward snorted and then said sam i ought to shot you for not knowing me but i reckon i've changed some sheep why i never had one in my life <laughs> come fellers here's to sam 
and his ability to still hedge on the truth life on the mississippi appeared in eighteen eighty three it was a volume of reminiscences of his youthful days as a steamboat pilot on the father of waters this volume was followed in eighteen eighty five by the prince and the pauper which was a remarkable performance and a surprise even to the friends of mr clemens for many years he had been a conscientious and untiring student of language literature history not merely making up for deficiencies of early education but laying solid foundations and building on them a broad and liberal culture which made him a man of letters in the true sense of the term his thorough knowledge of english and american literature is supplemented by a knowledge of that of various other languages of which he has acquired a thorough command the story of the prince and the pauper for instance reveals somewhat the extent and fidelity of his study of early england and is a story that at the beginning of his career he could neither have thought out or appreciated and yet it is very distinctly marked with his peculiar native genius and humor the adventures of huckleberry finn were published in eighteen eighty six the manuscript was completed many months before the book appeared owing to complications and differences with the publishers and finally was published by mr clemens himself in this book mark twain was at his best the london athenaeum in reviewing the work said it is such a book as he and he only could have written it is meant for boys but there are few men we should hope who once they take it up will not delight in it it forms a companion or sequel to tom sawyer huckleberry finn as everybody knows is one of tom's closest friends and the present volume is a record of the adventures which befell him soon after the event which made him a person of property and brought tom sawyer's story to a becoming conclusion they are of the most surprising and delightful kind imaginable and in the course of them we fall in with a number of types of character of singular freshness and novelty besides being schooled in half a dozen extraordinary dialects we shall content ourselves with repeating that the book is mark twain at his best and remarking that jim and huckleberry are real creations and the worthy peers of the illustrious tom sawyer later appeared a connecticut yankee in king arthur's court and other volumes in all of his books there is common sense and love of justice and hatred of cant and a vein of serious earnestness even in his most comical writings that will for all time make him near to the people as the london daily news once said of him his gravity in narrating the most preposterous tale his sympathy with every one of his absurdest characters his microscopic imagination his vein of seriousness his contrasts of pathos his bursts of indignant plain speaking about certain national errors make mark twain an author of the highest merit and far remote from the mere buffoon end of chapter eight read by john greenman